You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fong. So the same Thanks for downloading another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. Uh, this is episode 234, unless my numbering's off, which it often is. And this fine morning slash afternoon, depending on your uh, time zone, we're joined by uh, Dr. David Grubbs. He's an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University. Uh, David, how are things? Pretty decent. Can't complain, shouldn't anyway. Good, good, good. Also on the line, coming at you from St. Bonifacius, Minnesota, Dr. Michael Farmer. He's an assistant professor of English at Crown College. Uh, Michael, you're probably not nearly as close to finals as I am, are you? No. (laughs) Uh, Listeners, by the time you hear this, I will have given my final exams, uh, which is bizarre for me, but Emmanuel has a uh, winter term that's in December rather than January, so... I start early, I end early, so on and so forth. He works hard and he plays hard. That's, I don't know about all that. Um, tell you what, guys, what is going on on the Christian Humanist Radio Network? Oh. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, it, it's very Monday, dear listeners. It's very, very Monday. We've just been talking about that. So, you know, if it continues to be very Monday... There are two episodes about Stranger Things, one on the Christian Feminist Podcast and one on Sectarian Review. Yes, indeed. Very cool. And I'm trying to think, I mean, have the other shows done anything since the crossover, or did we pretty much wear them out on the crossover? (laughs) Uh, Oh, David, your your interview uh, about uh, Columbanus is up. Yeah. Say say a little bit about that, because I think our listeners might be interested there. Sure. Sure. uh, Columban or Columbanus uh, was a an Irish monastic, uh, well, a founder mm-hmm. uh, from the uh, the late sixth century on into the early seventh. Um, in the five nineties, he crosses over into uh, what was then uh, Frankish Gaul. And then over into into Italy, um, he establishes a lot of uh, a lot of monasteries. He writes a rule, the Rule of Columban. Um, but the reason, uh, so well, among the reasons why this is interesting, uh, Columban was one of the early uh, adopters in, of uh, some of the Benedict uh, some of the Benedictine rules um, uh, interests in in. Europe beyond Italy and uh, also it's the Irish emphasis on penance and discipline uh, in the rule of Columban that becomes it becomes one of the formative uh, one of the formative things in Western Christianity that shaped what became um, this system of confession and penance in in Western uh, Western Christianity 
So uh, the the interview was uh, with Father Terence Cardong, who is a, a Benedictine from an, uh, a, a monastery in North Dakota, and just a really really interesting fellow. Well, cool stuff. Well, listeners, be sure to check that out. Today on Christian Humanist Podcast, we're talking about a Platonic dialogue, and in fact, the shortest Platonic dialogue that's actually a dialogue. I think there's one that's shorter, but it's pretty much a long speech by Socrates, uh, and it's called. Uh, depending on how you pronounce your Greek, Ion or Yon, I'm probably going to say Ion this episode, so whatever these two guys say, just, you know, realize we're all talking about the same text. Uh, but, you know, as is customary, this dialogue is named after Socrates' conversation partner, uh, namely Ion, and this Ion is a rhapsode. So, David, what did a rhapsode do in ancient Ephesus and ancient Athens? And how does their work relate to the work of poets? A rhapsode is a professional singer uh, or reciter of poetry, but usually, usually singer. These poems were songs. Um, I don't have a good sense of what the Iliad or the Odyssey sung would have actually sounded like, but apparently that's 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 what it was. They were often uh, often itinerant, not necessarily, but often itinerant. Um, and they would perform songs for festive occasions. So it might be uh, the, the, the feast of a locally important and wealthy person, or it might be a public festival, or it might be uh, some kind of a religious occasion uh, that rhapsodes would be, would be performing. Uh, in the case of, of Ion, um, this rhapsode from Ephesus has arrived... Uh, presumably in Athens, having just won a contest of rhapsodes uh, in, in Ephesus. So they had a kind of um, poetry recitation Olympics, and he won. So he's really, really good at it. What the, the relation of their work to, uh, to other poets, by the time we get to uh, the, the, the period that, that is reflected in in this, uh, in this dialogue, it seems as if the texts of things like the Iliad and the Odyssey um, were s- stable traditions that people could talk about in um, in kind of common ways. All right. So he he the way Ion talks about Homer, uh, it it's it seems to be that everyone was generally agreed about what the text of Homer was so that he and Socrates can compare quotations. So there's a, there's a stability of the text that he's dealing with, and it's not his text that he's quoting. Um, he's specifically one who's delivering via a performative recitation the work of someone else. Now, uh, there was, it, it, it seems, you know, based on sort of general theories about the composition of, of text like the Odyssey and the Iliad, that there was a period in Greek um, in Greek poetry when song cycles about the adventures of, peop- of heroes like Odysseus were sung by itinerant singers, um, not yet called rhapsodes, um, which were, uh, uh, to a significant extent, uh, oral, uh, oral formulaic and uh, improvisational, um, but that the uh, kind of the, the the results downstream of this tradition get um, 
become the text of the Iliad and the Odyssey as we know it. Uh, but by the time you get to, uh, as, as I said, by the time you get to this particular text of Socrates, um, this rhapsode claims, d has no claim to be a poet. He, he does not claim that creativity. He does not claim that honor. Instead, he sees himself as in some sense in service to the poetic genius, um, rendering it as best he can um, in ways that we're going to discuss. What, what else uh, should, be, should, should we keep in mind when thinking about rhapsodes? Well, that distinction that you laid down is really the one I was after here. That uh, okay. often when we get taught uh, epic poetry, you know, especially sort of the primary text, you know, whether we're talking about Homer, whether we're talking about the Beowulf poet, uh, we talk about this, you know, very improvisational art form that later on gets codified. But what we're talking about here is, as you said, a text uh, for which the rhapsode doesn't get counted as a poet. So Homer, as far as this dialogue is concerned, uh, is the author uh, in a fairly, you know, straightforward, modern, understandable way. Uh, whereas, you know, Ion uh, derives his authority at second hand from Homer. So uh, anything second hand, of course, is going to be of interest to Plato, but I don't want to steal too much of that thunder just yet. Um, Michael, one of the questions at play here in this dialogue is whether a rhapsode in this cultural moment that, that David just narrated really knows the mind of the poet or if the relationship between poet, text, and interpreter stand in some other kind of relationship. Uh, of course, this makes me think of our work as interpreters of sorts. Do you reckon that our era's practices of literary criticism are engaging the same kinds of questions that Socrates is here, or do you think something else is going on? Probably something else, but I do think there are overlapping parts. So the rhapsode, in order to do his job properly, has to understand the poet. That's that's a given. And I, here I think, not knowing anything about rhapsodes, I found myself as I was going through the dialogue thinking of the rhapsode as half literary critic and half actor. And the, the rules here for for interpretation, I think, work equally well for an actor or for a literary critic. So in order to appropriately perform the Iliad, the the rhapsode has to understand who Homer is and what he's up to, right? He has to he has to really get into the the poet's mind, and, and in fact, it says pretty openly, um, you have to learn his thought, not just his verses. Now that's something to envy. I mean, no one would ever get to be a good rhapsode if he didn't understand what is meant by the poet. A rhapsode must come to present the poet's thought to his audience, and he can't do that beautifully unless he knows what the poet means. So right away you have a sense that the meaning of the text is grounded in authorial intent, at least as far as Ion puts it, because that's, that's who's speaking here, Ion. Now Socrates complicates that a little bit, because as, as we'll see, he doesn't think the poet really has any intention. Uh, it's the only way he can maintain the truth of poetry, given his well-known disgust with poetry and other works. So Socrates gets Ion to say that he can explain Hesiod as well as he can explain Homer, provided they're talking about the same things. 
And at that point, you really have moved beyond any kind of authorial intent. If they're talking about the same things, it means that the meaning of the text must be objective. It must lay in the text or perhaps in the relationship of the text to the things it's speaking about, the, the objective world. And in that sense, I think Socrates is moving us away from an older uh, biographical sort of criticism into something maybe that looks more like new criticism and beyond. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes some sense. Uh, and and ultimately he's gonna maybe. Ultimately he's gonna throw a spanner even in those works because authorial intent is just gonna become wholly, uh, wholly unnecessary. But also, uh, the work of the interpreter is gonna be become in some sense wholly unnecessary, at least as far as it proceeds from the mind of the interpreter. So I, I think Socrates pushes us towards something more like what most literary critics, I suspect, see their job as being. Um, certainly what Ion says is, a, is the model of pre-new critical biographical criticism, um, and, and Socrates is, is pushing us forward. Now, I, I also wonder how many modern-day interpreters of, of literature, uh, etc., really see their job as interpreting the text for the benefit of their own readers. I, I tend to think of it that way, that our job is to elucidate the text, to point out things that maybe people hadn't noticed before. But I, I do wonder if in, in a deconstructionist and post-deconstructionist world, if, if that's really what critics see their job as being. Hmm. Well, David, you threw in a uh, maybe there, so uh, talk, talk to me about maybe. Do you see it, it, does it? Does it seem to you as if Socrates seems seems to have no no category in terms of knowledge, knowing in relationship to the poem itself? It seems as it's it seems as if you know to the degree that the poem is speaking well of this body of knowledge or that body of knowledge or that other body of knowledge it simply can be replaced by that body of knowledge and everything else in the poetry is just a kind of divine madness which is caught by the poet caught by the performer caught by the audience and isn't analyzable yeah i think that's accurate and if you i mean if you look at the things plato says about poetry in in the Republic and elsewhere, it becomes clear. I mean, his his view of art is that it's pretty much wholly mimetic. So it's a it's a copy of the the external world, which is itself, of course, a copy of the world of forms, etc., etc., etc. So yeah, I, I do think I do think he thinks of the the poem as not being the the site of knowledge of its own, but rather being a reflection of pre-existing knowledge in the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, that's why I framed yeah. the question in terms of, you know, the, the poet and the text and the interpreter, right? Because I, you, you all are both right that, I mean, Socrates looks right past what we would call the artifact uh, and, you know, basically says the only good that it presents is that it, it reflects some kind of reality beyond itself. Uh, and I mean, I think that I would say that, you know, a poem does reflect realities beyond itself, uh, but I would say that it it is also a thing in its own right. Is that fair enough, David? Well, and, and that is the thing, 
that he seems to have completely left out of it. And so, at least in that regard, I would say that Socrates is doing something that would that makes no sense in terms of our or any other era's literary criticism. Um, because he se- he seems to have no regard for the poet as a thing, or for for the poem as a th- as as a thing to be understood. You know, if you can simply highlight the sections of the Iliad talking about chariot races, and then drop them out, and then drag in the knowledge of an actual charioteer, um, then there is no more poem. I I don't think that that form of literary criticism has really disappeared. I I, I think so, so. There's a certain sort of Christian literary criticism that is entirely evaluating the quote unquote truth claims of the of the work. Right? Um, does this teach us good moral lessons? Does this does this accurate accurately reflect reality? I think in that sense they're doing something Socratic. Um, whether or not we think it has value, and I, I suspect we think it has limited value at the very best. Um, you also, I mean, you, you get something similar in certain sorts of Marxist criticism. If you think about the way, for example, Marx reads uh, Goethe's Sorcerer's Apprentice in, uh, in the Communist Manifesto, the sorcerer's apprentice there is there to illustrate this economic principle that he has. He's not interested in the sorcerer's apprentice as a literary artifact. He's interested in it as a prop for well, what he would call objective reality, I suspect. So, you're right that that's a move away from from the text as the lo- the locus of authority. But I I wouldn't say that it's a move away from literary criticism as such. It's still literary criticism. It's just not doing what you and I want literary criticism to do, I suspect. Right. Interesting. And, and yeah, I mean, you know, and, and that's why uh, I enjoy this little dialogue, you know, not because I like the answers at which it arrives, uh, but because it does, you know, raise these kinds of questions, right? I mean, you know, in the face of this criticism of Socrates, what kinds of intellectual moves do we have to make in order to make what we do intelligible whether as readers or as, you know, teachers of literature or as critics, uh, or, I mean, as Michael noted, as actors, right? You know, what is it that actors are doing? Uh, You know, the way that Socrates, as Plato presents him, you know, thinks of actors or rhapsodes or whatever, they are simply imitators, and therefore they aren't as good as the real thing, whereas, you know, the, the way that we tend to talk about things, to act is a different thing not merely a copy of a thing uh so yeah i mean i i dig it i dig it um and you know i mean and speaking of you know these new questions i mean david this is this is one of my you know mantras in the classroom is that uh the extent to which a text poses questions that i wouldn't know how to pose unless i had read it that makes it an interesting book for me And, I mean, we've already gotten into one of those interesting questions, but, I mean, another one uh, comes when Socrates and Ion are are talking about Ion's devotion to Homer. Uh, He says that whenever someone brings up Homer, all of a sudden his interest is piqued, uh, his attention is is wrapped. Uh, But when people talk about Hesiod or any of the other poets of the time, uh, he gets so bored that he actually falls asleep. And it occurs to me that, I mean, in my own uh, reading 
uh, you know, there are certain authors that, you know, when, when the, the subject of their works comes up, I'm always up for a conversation. And there are other folks, I mean, even if I have read them, and perhaps because I have read them, uh, I mean, they, they make me just dread the upcoming conversation. So, I mean, how might we answer, David, if someone noticed that this author claims our attention more readily than that one? Well, one of the, one of the things I thought about as I was reading this dialogue uh, other than how much I just wanted to smack Socrates in the head, uh, I, I find him particularly infuriating in this one. Um, <laughs> and I, I find that endearing, but keep rolling. Yeah, you find it endearing that I find him infuriating, or do you find his... No, I, I find it endearing that he uh, <laughs> he plays this game with all of his interlocutors. Right. I, I feel sorry for this poor sap who just kind of wandered up and just wanted to talk about Homer and then it all goes the way it goes uh, how might we answer if someone notices that this author claims our attention more readily than another uh, one of the, among the things that socrates doesn't talk about he 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 keeps speaking of poems as and poets as speaking about topics and they are uh, and the 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 question that is always raised, uh, that, that, that he raises, is to what extent are they speaking well of these topics? Which, which uh, means, in the way that he develops it, it simply means are they speaking truthfully of this topic? So that uh, if Homer speaks well of medicine or the prescription, uh, the prescription of a doctor for an injury or a sickness, that that Homer would then be speaking the same thing that a doctor would say in that circumstance. And so the, 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 the poem is judged on the basis of does it, does it present that, that information well? So that if Homer and Hesiod both speak well of gods and wars and seas and skies, as you say, then Socrates treats them as, as therefore, they've both spoken well of the same topic Therefore, their speech is interchangeable. So there's no particular reason why we should find one more accessible than another, one more pleasant than another. They've spoke, they've both spoken well on the same thing. So why have more than one? Well, um, this is this is where later literary thinking about. Uh, things like point of view become useful, uh, and this is this is even something that I, I think shows up in the Christian era, which explains things like why we have four gospels and resisted the move to boil them down into one gospel. Um, you know why, if you have four gospels, each one that speaks well of this Jesus guy, why not just pick one? All right. Uh, or boil them all into one diatessaron. Yes, why, why not? Well, if you're Socrates, you don't see why not. But if you're someone who happens to like the sort of thing that a gospel or an epic or any other sort of literary work is, you recognize the value of a unique perspective, um, uh, uh, the point of view that shapes a piece of art, um, the, the literary quality with, it, with which it's crafted, the distinctive styles 
of of authors um you come to see each literary work as a kind of distinct experience um even of its knowledge of common topics um so that so that each even even literary works by the same author on the same topic might nonetheless all still be worth reading individually because each presents it in in a different kind of way but Socrates or maybe rather Plato through Socrates um is always always seems much less interested in that kind of attention to the distinct accidents and is always wanting to kind of boil things down um but there's something irreducible I think about the about the literary artifact that he isn't reckoning with but which I think we do reckon with when we say we prefer Tolkien to George R. R. Martin or something like that even though they both write enormous books about battles in not real worlds don't you think Plato's metaphysics keeps him from seeing the literary artifact as an artifact because everything always reduces to a copy of the forms this is why all art has to be mimetic and mimetic by the way in the stupidest possible way who reads homer for advice on piloting a chariot <laughs> you know what i mean ion does apparently yeah. is there is there something and, and this i don't know i'm no plato scholar nor the son of one um but there there often seems to be something almost obtuse here like did the metaphysic of what art is come first or did this individual philosopher's inability to actually appreciate poetry come first <laughs> i am uh, energized by your hatred for plato <laughs> and, and i tend to take a more sympathetic reading largely because at the end of his you know bid in the republic to ban poets from Callipolis, the good city uh you know socrates all but turns to the camera and invites the reader to state a case in praise of poetry that would pass muster uh and you know as michael has said on this show before Later on in the dialogue, is it the laws, Michael, that he that he completes his case against poetry? Yes, I think so. Uh, you know, Plato, the writer, uh, goes back on it. But if we take the the Republic as you know, uh, at the very least, a moment of openness in the Platonic corpus, uh, I'm I'm inclined to think that he was at least open to the possibility. Now, the the other thing that is that. I tend to read Plato's dialogues, uh, you know, as I talked about at the, the conference we went to, guys, uh, as a set of teaching texts rather than as a systematic philosophy. So I, when I read Socrates being obtuse and other people unable to counter him, I read those, generally speaking, as invitations for the reader who's, who isn't bound by, you know, the role of Socratic interlocutor uh, to actually do better than Euthyphro or Ion or Charmides or whoever else to do. So I, you know, I'm probably influenced by my my historicism here, but I tend to think of, you know, Ion not as a statement of the final truth, but as an invitation to do better. I think that's a much more amenable way to do it because 
it so the, uh, this the Socrates and Ion I think some sometimes just comes across as really obtuse to someone who likes literature because he seems to have no no recognition in this in this dialogue of why anyone would even want to uh, it's all just sort of a divine madness anyway and that's unanalyzable so I'm just gonna go over here and do something else and talk about charioteering um, it we in uh, my English Lit 1 class uh, earlier in the week uh, actually end of last week because it's Monday Oof. we looked at Sydney's defense of poesy and one of the things that he talks about is how even the Greek philosophers make use of the forms of the forms of poesy and that's that's right you know, and I think that's a you know that's absolutely true of Plato. Some of the, the Platonic po poetic paradox, you might call it. Yeah, I mean, some of the most beautiful stories I know that are illustrative of of things that I find you know valuably true come out of Plato, the 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 guy who's um, sometimes obtuse spokesperson in those dialogues doesn't seem to get why such a thing would be effective. So. Somewhere at the back of, obtu of, of Socrates' obtuseness, you know, I, I'd like to think, as you do, Nathan, that there's someone back there who has a, a better notion of what's, of what's going on and is inviting us to figure out why. Well, and even if there's not, even if the historical man, Plato, really did have this really bad metaphysic that couldn't recognize that a poem is actually a thing rather than a bad copy, the tradition itself, the practice of dialectic, uh, opens up the possibility for someone else, let's call him Aristotle, to come along <laughs> and give a more adequate account of how these things are working. Yes. So, I mean, I, I, I think the real power of it is that we don't have to speculate about the inner life of Plato, the man. We can say that the tradition that he opens up, uh, you know, has space available so that we can actually do these things that we want to do with Ion other than to smack Socrates. We can't do that at this point. Sorry, David. <laughs> well, I think Athens got around to that eventually anyhow. Um, yeah, but, point taken. But point taken. I, I'm not always, I, I'm, I'm usually not sympathetic to that move, but in the Ion, um, <laughs> I, I don't know that I would have made him drink hemlock, but, you know, I've maybe thrown a book at him. Made him shut his fool mouth. <laughs> I'm not saying I would have made him drink hemlock, but I understand. <laughs> um, well, Michael, uh, one of Socrates' arguments that, that poets and raptodes do undergo this spiritual possession that we've been talking about, uh, rather than being you know skilled masters of any real art, is that any given poet might perform masterfully for one work and then lapse in the next, and then in any given poetic act might wax or wane in the quality of the work. So do we modern literature readers or literature teachers or literature, uh, you know, enjoyers have a better account than divine possession of this fluctuation in quality? Or are we pretty well stuck with what account Socrates gives? I think it's a pretty compelling account. I mean, obviously, we don't think that they're being indwelled by the gods, although some of us might. But what we're talking about here is poetic inspiration. And it is true that inspiration phenomenologically is a kind of a grace, right? So we, we've all had the experience, whether we're artists or not, of working on something 
being stuck and having it somehow come to us. And it, it feels like it comes to us from outside of ourselves, even if you don't believe it does. And so I think, again, phenomenologically, he's describing this pretty well. And I, one thing I like about this dialogue is that he doesn't restrict that, that inspiration to the, to the original poet, that the actor, the interpreter, the reader, all of us are subject to this, this inspiration by this, he compares it to a magnet magnetizing pieces of steel which then attract other pieces of steel so the gods of the original magnet they speak through the poet who speaks through the rhapsode who speaks to the audience and each of these is a piece of steel that has been um that has been magnetized by the original magnet i really think that's a compelling image a poetic image by the way for um for what happens with artistic inspiration now it's got to be more than that because if if you sit around just waiting for inspiration to come. It doesn't work that way. Inspiration comes when you push yourself, when you're working constantly, uh, the breakthrough is able to come to you. It can't just, it's not just a matter of sitting around waiting for the gods to speak through you. At least it never has been for me. So I think it's an incomplete picture, but in terms of being a picture of the particular event of inspiration, uh, I, I, it really appeals to me. What do you guys think? David, go ahead. I find it really interesting, and this is this is pulling off of uh, st stemming off of what you just said, Michael. I think it's interesting in the dialogue that that Ion immediately concedes this point uh, because the 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 way that his character is presented, he he feels. He feels that experience. He, he says, yeah, that's, that's exactly what it's like to get caught up in reciting Homer and in the moment to do the thing that catches, um, you know, that catches the audience uh, with the same kind of enthusiasm that has swept up uh, the one doing the recitation. So there's, there's something about it that, that, does, that does appeal. Um, but this, though, is the, this is the point at which we have to bring in Aristotle you know, or at which Aristotle will show up later <laughs> and give insight into things like how, uh, how skills are developed and, and, and things of that nature. Um, there's the, the skill side of, of poetry is something that gets, that Socrates does not treat in the Ion. It's as if, if everything comes by inspiration, then where does bad poetry come from? Is it just less inspired? Um, but as an account of other other professions, you know, what makes the winning charioteer uh, different from those others who don't win? Is he an inspired charioteer, or does he know something more than the others do? Not necessarily. Um, the the possibility for success in poetry um, seems similar to the, the the necessity for success in these other things that Socrates raises. Um, but each of those he seems to regard simply as a as a craft, as a science, as a as a set of of knowledge of subject matter, um, while leaving out all that goes into mastery. Um, and 
I think that's the thing that the inspiration leaves out for poetry. It's as if poetry is all the magic and these other professions are all the knowledge. Um, but I think there's probably more magic in golf or in charioteering than he gives credit for. And there's more subject matter, more profession, more technical mastery in poetry than he gives credit for. Well, and there's a third. And there's a third component there too in all of them, which is practice, which right. is neither which is neither inspirational nor uh, intellectual. It's it's you know think about golf. The the way you get better at right. golf is to suck at it for a really long time, <laughs> yep. um, and and eventually eventually your body learns to play golf. So I I suspect that all all fields of knowledge have similar practical elements as well as intellectual and inspirational. And listeners, you might not have known that Plato was a big golfer, but uh, <laughs> you know recent archaeology does uh, reveal that. Yeah. But but it's interesting. I mean, I, I think that one of the reasons that this dialogue resonates with me is because I was a preacher for a number of years. And, you know, I, I tried not to sit on the same text every time. But, you know, I mean, when Easter would roll around or Transfiguration Sunday or, you know, the Advent text, you know, I, w- I would preach the same text. And there were definitely times when the first time I would preach a text, I would definitely do a better sermon than the, the, the one I did after that. And so, I mean, you know, the, this, this phenomenon that, that Michael talked about where uh, there are factors that are not identical with my level of preparation, because I always try to prepare well, um, something happens so that this sermon is better than that one. And, you know, while I wouldn't call it, you know, some god or another necessarily, uh, especially not, you know, with preaching, because, you know, monotheism and all that, uh, <laughs> there's definitely something going on with the practice of homiletics that, you know, uh, I can account in retrospect for the preparation I did. I can account in retrospect for the, you know, the, the, the general health of my own body. You know, I mean, if I've got a cold, I'm not going to preach as well. I can account for other kinds of things, but there's still some kind of remainder there where, you know, there's something, uh, that I would call random, but that's because I'm a, you know, I'm more of a Scrooge personality than I, I like to admit sometimes. Uh, that, that definitely alters the quality of it, if you will. I mean, I, I, does that make any sense? It does yeah. to me. I mean, we, we've we all had this experience in class too, right? You'll be mm-hmm. having a discussion with your students and all of a sudden the text will just open itself to you in a way that it didn't when you were alone. And that's happening through dialogue. Mm-hmm. Um, I Like I said, this, this, this reading of reading really appeals to me. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I teach two sections of the same class, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday mornings. I teach it at 8, and I teach it at 9. And every time it's different. It's the same texts. Um, but I have different students that I'm working with, and somehow, you know, 50 minutes changes things. Um, but, you know, you, you get, you know, we talked about golfing. Get 10 golf masters. Put them on the same course playing every day for a week and there will be different winners every day you know because you know there's there's something intangible about about the moment that uh that really is important and maybe that inspiration thing is a nice a nice mystical way to capture that oh sure i mean it's certainly metaphorical i wouldn't say that literally Mm -hmm. there are 
gods floating around, you know, making <laughs> us, you know, shoot a better driver this time rather than that time. This is not a Frank Peretti novel. Right. But there's also something called Sprezzatura, which we've alluded to before, which is uh, how to practice, uh, how to become excellent in such a way that when you perform, it seems as if it was all the muse. Um, no one sees you sweat. It just seemed to come in the moment. But really, you actually have put in the labor for that. That's fair enough. That's fair enough. Well, David, uh, Plato has a bit of fun at Ion's expense at the end of this dialogue. I think he has a bit of fun at his <laughs> expense all the way through. But uh, when he has the poor Rhapsode claim uh, under you know, Socrates' badgering, that ultimately, because he studied Homer, he's a better general than the people claiming to be generals in his own day. Um, and honestly, I mean, when I read this, it makes me think of many of our own Christian bookstore trends where people claim to be better than the dietitians or the family therapists or the financial planners or other learned professionals because they can quote the Bible and give you, you know, the Jesus diet. So I I. I I still want to affirm the Bible as a source of wisdom. So how does that, you know, ion slash Jesus diet approach go astray? And what better alternatives do we have for learning from texts? Yeah, I, f I feel really sorry for ion at the end of this. <laughs> uh, he, he has just been manhandled throughout this whole thing. And then in the end, when, uh, Socrates gets him to say, "Sure, I could general." Uh, it's it's just the 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 cr the crowning humiliation. Um, but it seems as if Ion's understanding of what a main general's duty is comes exclusively from Homer, and for and from his from his knowledge of it, a general's main duty is to give inspiring speeches. You mean it's not? I think there might be other things too, but they don't necessarily show up in the Homer, right? Um, the Rhapsode could certainly give a rousing speech, right? Um, you know, I al almost certainly Shakespeare wrote a better speech for Henry V than Henry V actually gave. Um, so, so there's that. Um, but the literary representation of general speech is not the entirety of the general's art. And that, I think, is, is kind of the angle that I want to take in, in approaching, approaching the Bible. Now, you said that you want to do this and still affirm the Bible as source of wisdom, but you've also pitched it as me, the inerrantist on the show. And so I'm not going to fight out all of that stuff, but this is the way I try... These are some of the things I try to use to sort out this problem um, myself, hopefully in ways that all sides of this debate will think are sensible. Um, it's silly to read the Bible as if every sentence was literal, plain-spoken truth. Um, because Jesus is not literally a lamb. Right. Well, and it includes sentences like, there is no God, or Jesus is a drunkard <laughs> and a glutton, right? Um, it includes sentences like that. So every sentence is situated in a context, and, you know, all Cretans are liars, said the Cretan poet, all right? And, you know, the one is in tension with the other and the whole effect ends up being satirical. Um, 
Right, and this is what made me so uneasy about First Clement a couple weeks ago, is mm-hmm. that the speeches of Eliphaz are so approvingly quoted as a simple oracle of God right alongside Isaiah or Jeremiah. Right. I mean, I think if I was reading Job, I would probably be a little bit more sympathetic with Clement than you are, but that's because I tend to see the, the, the deep error of Job's friends in the fact that their wisdom is a near miss. Um, the fa- the fact that they've gotten m- things mostly right, but it's the thing that they've gotten wrong that makes that makes them so critically fall short. Um, not that they're just sitting there, you know, mouthing mouthing the sorts of things that Baal worshippers would or something like that. Um, but that's la- that's that's Clement. Um, but but that's exactly you know the kind of point that I want to raise, Nathan is. Do you quote, you know, if if Satan happens to say something good, do you quote Satan? Um, you know, because he quotes the Bible, right? If if did when he quotes a psalm to Jesus in uh you know in the temptations, when you quote that psalm, do you cite the psalm or do you cite what Satan said <laughs> in the gospel, <laughs> right? Because it's the same words, right? Um, so what utterance? What is the utterance? The sense of the utterance as it's presented in the context. And, and this is important, especially if it's a text that you're going to want to put weight on for what you affirm um, as, as things Christians should affirm and live according to, um, is that utterance affirmed and, and ha- interpreted in other contexts? Um, so that's one. Um, the Bible never claims to present all true knowledge on a given subject. Psalm 23, uh, I, I'm, I just assume Psalm 23 presents accurate images of Iron Age, shepherd, of Iron Age shepherding. <laughs> but it's not an exhaustive guide to those shepherds' professional knowledge. Right? Um, so, but Psalm 23 is never claiming to. So I wouldn't give the Psalm 23 guide to taking care of sheep because my sheep are going to die. The <laughs> Psalm wasn't for that. The shepherd comes home at the end of the evening. Where are the sheep? I left them in green pastures. That's what the Psalm says. Besides still waters. <laughs> That's where they are. <laughs> um, so what's happening in the poem? What's happening in the narrative? Don't just sort of pluck an utterance out and say this this is the sum total of what scripture affirms to be truth about this thing. That's not that's not what the Bible is claiming. Not that um, anybody in the modern world would do that. No, of course not. Um <laughs> it also never claims that what occurs in one situation necessarily defines what is always true or moral or even appropriate or safe. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is a goofy analogy, but Absalom's hair isn't a universal statement about the appropriateness of long hair, and I have heard it preached that way, with a kind really? of with a kind of blissful ignoring about the whole Nazarite tradition. Yeah, that's uh, that's really something. Are women still allowed to have long hair? Well, or, or but will they not, not get allowed... their hair caught in trees? Yeah, they're not allowed to ride through the woods though. <laughs> <laughs> what I mean, if I don't drive a convertible? Can I <laughs> or ride a tall donkey? Like how big was this donkey? Um you know, 
the Daniel diet, you know, I think kind of goes in here. The Daniel story, where he, are, are he, one of our favorite, uh, one of our favorite misreadings of scripture on this uh, this podcast. Yeah. Oh yeah. If, if David hadn't gone there, I was going to have Michael talk about eating your vegetables. Right. How many episodes in were we when when, when this when this came up? This was like first season. Since, it was I first think. season. That my my Sunday school for those of you who have not been listening that long. My Sunday school, when I was in elementary school, uh, told us the moral of the Daniel uh, story was to eat your vegetables. <laughs> right. Which uh, then some listeners showed it to us. Uh, uh, Rick Warren has a book that encourages all to lose weight by keeping Daniel's diet, avoiding the rich food of Nebuchadnezzar. Yeah. So... Did you guys always... I always pictured, like, red velvet cake and wine. <laughs> it was probably just a lot of meat. Red velvet cake. I mean, that's, that, that is just the, the height of Babylonian decadence. <laughs> um, I'm going to eat a whole red velvet cake now. <laughs> so that's just one moment in biblical history. And nowhere else do I know of in the Bible does it say, just eat vegetables and drink water. Oh, wait, I think there's a reference in one of Paul's letters where he says, some people do this, but they don't have to. Right, right. Um, Rick Warren. Rick Warren. <laughs> there he is. Um, I mean, it's one moment in biblical history, and it seems as if in the context of that story that it's a kind of low-level miracle or confirmation sign that God's favor is with these Hebrew hostages, that they're eating vegetables and drinking water and yet bulking up and looking healthy. Right. right. Thank you, David, because that is precisely the force of the narrative, mm -hmm. is that this is a moment of inexplicable divine grace, that even though they are eating like paupers, mm -hmm. they are becoming large like great men. Yes. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is not a text about nutrition and weight loss. Right? <laughs> weight loss were... was very rarely a problem in the ancient world. Right. Everybody knew how to do that. Yeah, I mean, one of the prophets, and I, I wish I'd looked this up before we recorded, I mean, pronounces an oracle against one of the surrounding nations and says, you will have clean teeth. And, you know, today, <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I could imagine some misguided Christian dentist having that up in his office, you know, framed in a, you know, nice scroll picture. But, uh, you know, that was a, a curse saying that you won't have food to eat. Yeah. So that, that that's kind of how I would... I, I, w I would answer that the, the Bible does just because the Bible talks about a lot of topics because the Bible talks about how to manage wealth or gives proverbs with advice for for farming and other types of labor or um, instructions for kings that doesn't that doesn't mean that the Bible is has has ever presented itself as the big rainy day exhaustive book of political economy or whatever else you want it to be. Reading um, reading the Bible for diet advice is a lot like reading Homer for how to drive a chariot. <laughs> I mean, I would read Homer for how to write an exciting race scene. Right? Right. And there, like I said, I mean, it is where, you know, now that I have come to read Platonic Dialogues primarily as teaching texts, I think that's exactly where the inquiry leads. So I'm glad that you go there, David, because, I mean, what what is the difference between reading it as, you know, a model of writing versus a model of technical, 
know-how. Well, because the ultimate goal of the poem, and this is something, this is something that Socrates kind of nods at when he talks about um, the emotions of the audience and the way that everyone gets caught up in this kind of multiple levels of magnetic uh, inspiration, whatever, whatever you want to call it. But it's absolutely something that Aristotle unpacks, which is the idea that a, that a story, um, however it's produced theatrically or in the in the performance of a rhapsode, a story is there to create a, a kind of experience for the audience. And so, you know, analyzing what that uh, what that experience, uh, how that experience works, is is a big part of of what's going on there. Um, it's not, you know, the chariot race is not a guide to how to race chariots. It's an attempt to put an audience into the exciting riskiness and tension and back and forthness of an exciting race. Um, like the 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 ship race in in the Aeneid, and every time I review that to teach in class and. Um, the one dude sails his ship too cautiously around the rock and so falls behind and then his captain throws him overboard so that he comes out of the ocean like spitting and coughing and everyone on the beach laughs. I laugh too because um, I see it in my head. It's, you know, it's just a vividly realized moment. And it has nothing to do with teaching me about how to race you know, ancient Greek galleys around in the ocean. Um, that's not what it's for. Anything else you'd want to add to that, Michael? Yeah, in a weird way, this is what happens when you let go of authorial intent. I mean, I, I frequently tell my students not to worry so much about authorial intent, but you'll remember that, that that's what Ion wants. He wants you to know what Homer is intending, uh, whereas Socrates is saying, what does it say about the real world? Um hopefully there's a way to not rely on authorial intent that also does not make you into an idiot. But uh, maybe that's what we're talking about when we talk about treating the text as an object in its own right. Well, sure. I'm, and even treating the text as, you know, having its own kind of analogous, let me emphasize that, mm -hmm. agency, right? right. Uh, what is the text doing here? What does the text want the reader to do? You know, the sort of, Stanley Fish project that you know informs so so much of my own teaching, uh, I think gets away from certainly from this you know very simple-minded mimetic model that Socrates puts forth, but it also I, I think to a large extent uh, removes the necessity to read the author's mind. Now of yeah. course this is complicated by the fact that in the last ten years Stanley Fish has started becoming a an authorial intent theorist, but. <laughs> Uh, if I if I can have the Stanley Fish of the '90s, uh, then I think he avoids some of this stuff. Well, I mean, if if I can kind of come in and 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 say, when we when we're talking about authorial authorial intent, uh, I don't I I, I I I would really hope that what we're the problem we're raising is the the inaccessibility of authorial intent. Um, the the fact that uh, unless I've got the author on speed dial, 
I'm unlikely to be able to make any kind of conclusive case about what that is. And even if I did, um, the author's intent may not actually account entirely for my experience of that text um, and may not account for things that that text actually legitimately does um, for many people because sometimes authors don't understand what they're doing. Um, but at the same time, there is a human being who had some kind of purpose going into it, and that's not that's not an unimportant factor. So I, I, right. I guess what I'm saying is that uh, arthurial intent is not... It existed. <laughs> Somebody meant to do something. Uh, the difficulty is is how do you get at it, and does the author's intent entirely encompass what a text does or can do right right and i would grant that david that i mean we can certainly talk about authors as genuine agents and we should talk about authors as genuine agents yeah. uh we can also talk about a text as having an afterlife mm -hmm. beyond the moment of artistic creation that might go in directions that the author didn't anticipate right oh uh, yes uh, for for instance, the author might not have anticipated that people would want to learn how to ride a chariot from his poem. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Well, Michael, I, I'm trying to keep an eye on the clock here. Uh, since we really could assign this text along with some other reading for a single class meeting, and then listeners, I'll, I'll pause here to note that, you know, this really is a dialogue that, uh, you know, there are YouTube clips of people performing this dialogue, and they're about 11-minute clips, so it's very short. Uh, but Michael, I want to go wine and cheese here at the end, take it around the horn. Uh, what text, critical, narrative, or otherwise, would you teach alongside Plato's Ion? I'll make this quick. I would teach Ralph Waldo Emerson's The Poet, which features a, a fairly similar idea of artistic inspiration to Socrates. And I think very helpfully, uh, Emerson points out that all human beings have this power of inspiration. It's just the poet is somehow more in tune with it than others. I think Socrates offers a uh, a nice corollary to that, which is to say that when you when you read a particular text, you are also being inspired, um, even if you're not inspired to create one yourself. David, I would pitch Philip Sidney, uh, defense of poesy. Um, I, I I think uh, I think that text. Uh, still has a lot of good stuff to a lot of good stuff to say and since I would imagine the way that I'm bringing this text in anyway uh, is to uh, set up a conversation for how later generations reacted to a platonic account of of what literature is and what literature does um, I'd pitch Sydney as kind of my centuries centuries later uh, voice in that conversation very good and I'll, I'll split the difference between the uh, renaissance and the you know American renaissance uh, and go with uh, Jonathan Edwards sermon a divine and supernatural light it's Ooh. one that I've mentioned before on the show uh, and this is more on the interpretive end than on the poetic end uh, but I mean he gives a really theologically interesting and sophisticated account of the real phenomenon that we see and you know of course he was starting to see in the there in the 18th century of people who study the bible professionally in an, in a university setting 
and yet come away unmoved by what we would call Christian faith. Uh, you know, his account of things is that, you know, the spirit's movement uh, doesn't always accompany cognitive understanding of, of what a text is doing, uh, and that therefore, you know, you could have real instances where someone understands the Bible becomes away unfaithful, whereas someone who doesn't understand it as well comes away with saving faith. Uh, it's not because of the intellectual processes that we call reading interpretation, but it really is a divine act. So, I mean, in that sense, uh, kind of like what Michael said, I mean, you know, this is a, a text that resonates in a lot of interesting ways with what Plato is doing here in the Ion. Very cool. Uh, so, listeners, I, I just want to say one more time that this is the shortest of Plato's dialogues. We'll try to put some kind of uh, link to an, uh, a public domain translation on the Facebook group as well as on the website. Uh, but it's one that if you've not read a lot of Plato, uh, this is one that you can take down probably in less than an hour. Uh, and, you know, if you read it like I read it, take it as an opportunity to take a step beyond what Socrates at his most obtuse doesn't seem capable of doing. But that's enough about Plato right now. Uh, David, I believe uh, you are steering the ship in our race of ships next week. Uh, <laughs> around which rocks will we be steering? Funny you should ask that, Nathan, because, in fact, uh, in the week after this episode, what we'll be playing is the live episode that we recorded when uh, we were at the conference at Dort College in lovely Sioux Center, Iowa. Very good. Uh, that was from the Culture Criticism and the Christian Mind Conference, mm -hmm. and we hope you enjoy that, listeners. The topic, by the uh, way, is T.S. Eliot's... Uh, I can't even remember the name of it. I never can. <laughs> the idea of a Christian society. Yes. Um, it's about 50 pages, so if you want to read it, start reading. Right. Yep, yep. Right. So, listeners, uh, until then, you can, as always, catch us at christianhumanist.org. You can find us on Facebook. Uh, you can and you should, and we beseech you, we exhort you, we implore you, Leave some reviews on iTunes. That's the way that most podcast listeners get their material. And we always enjoy having new people along. Christian Humanist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our intern is Ellen Peterson. And I am Nathan Gilmore on behalf of Michael Farmer and David Grubb saying, Let your sins be strong. Let your faith be stronger. <laughs>